Let me just begin by saying welcome now, not only to this whole assembly that's gathered here in this room, but welcome to those of you who are joining us online with this ancient 2,000-year-old live streaming web technology. We're really glad that you're here and able to join us this way. We are starting this series today. It's called Ancient Roots, and it is an exploration of this creed that we just confessed, this ancient summary of our faith in God called the Apostles' Creed. As we begin today with an experience that in some ways approximates an ancient Christian gathering, I was caused to reflect on the, the appeal that ancientness and the value that ancientness has for us. I think as a people, even as a culture, as, as modern as we are, as fast as things are changing, in the midst of that and maybe because of that, there is an appeal for ancient things. I was shopping not that long ago and stumbled across this box of cereal that you can see a picture of here. It's called Ancient Grains. A little bit hard to see. They're ancient grains. There we go. Now, this is only available at a very small, boutique, local, artisanal grocer. It's called Costco. Some of you might have heard of it. There is a widespread hunger for ancient things. Not to be outdone, General Mills is in on the mix. You can not only get Cheerios, you can get Cheerios plus ancient grains. When I look at that picture, I, you must think I photoshopped that, but that's actually true. That's there. A few years ago, several years ago, I bought a loaf of bread locally right here at Kowalski's. Maybe you've heard this before. It's Ezekiel 4-9 bread. Have you ever seen that in the grocery store? So uh, I, I, actually, the kind I had was cinnamon raisin Ezekiel 4-9 bread, which is a little bit different, but Ezekiel 4-9 bread. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of a Bible guy, right? And so I bought this bread. I'm like, I what does Ezekiel 4.9 actually say? And if I were holding my Bible right now, I would read it to you. Excuse me. <laughs> Thank you. That's what it takes to get a little applause around here. Ezekiel 4.9. It says this. It's the recipe. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar, and use them to make bread for yourself. Now, I think when you read the ingredients in the bread, it's a little different, but that's basically it. Some of the grains are sprouted, right? But because I'm a Bible guy, I read the next half of the verse. That's Ezekiel 4.9, first half. Ezekiel 4.9, second half, says, you are to eat it during the 390 days that you lie on your side. Okay, not, not part of the packaging on this bread, actually, nor did I do that when I bought the bread. Now, you might, God gave the ancient prophet Ezekiel sometimes some unusual ways of acting out or embodying the words of prophecy that God gave him for Israel. Now, I mentioned I'm kind of a Bible guy, right? Maybe more than kind of. And so I kept reading, and I thought, well, that's the recipe, but how are you supposed to bake it? How do you cook these grains? Ezekiel 4.12 is nowhere to be found on this packaging, and that's because it says, eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread, bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. <laughs> he was supposed to bake it over a poop fire. <laughs> that is not part of the marketing plan. There's a reason they don't call it Ezekiel 4, 9 through 12 bread, because people <laughs> might read that. Goodness. There is a certain appeal to ancient things, but progress is okay, right? <laughs> We're kind of caught in this tension between ancient and new, ancient and new, and that is true of the Christian faith too. It is really important for us that we have ancient roots, that there is ancient grounding, that there is longstanding depth and power. And as a people in the year 2016, we need it. 
when everything else is so temporary, it goes so fast. Half of what I see on a given day is probably on my smartphone screen or my computer screen. It is gone almost as fast as I look at it. Tweets are 140 characters long, and it's what I love about them and what I hate about them at the same time. Snaps appear and disappear just as fast as one another. Things, the email that you send, now word to the wise on this, none of this stuff ever actually disappears, right? So if you are sending an email that you would be embarrassed to have posted on a bulletin board somewhere, don't send it, okay? But in our experience, it goes so fast. It's not just technological things. I think back to my father's career. My dad got a job out of college as a paint chemist in the lab at the Sherwin-Williams Company and helped formulate paint for Sherwin-Williams. For his entire career until he retired a few years ago, he worked in some form of paint chemistry for the Sherwin-Williams Company. Now that sort of career arc has almost gone the way of the dodo bird, right? People change jobs so fast, stuff feels unstable, you never know where you are. From one year to another, we can feel so rootless. And it is important and powerful to us, it is needful to us to be a part of something that has ancient roots, that has staying power. That we know that the the teaching of Christianity, that the faith that we hold together is not something that somebody thought up 10 years ago in a new marketing fad and it'll be different again next year, but rather there is ancient truth and we are a part of something much bigger and longer standing than we are. And yet, at the same time that our message and identity are always ancient, They are also always new. There's a a Christian scholar, his name is Laman Sana, and I I read a book that he wrote 20, 25 years ago. It's called Translating the Message. And Laman Sana was was a missionary in Africa, but he did not grow up as a Christian. He grew up as a Muslim. And one of the things that he noticed about Christian practice was that Christians were always translating their message into new language, into new cultures, re-communicating their truth in the symbols and activities and meaning structure of every new culture that they entered. And he noticed that, he was sensitized to that because he grew up as a Muslim. And in Islam, the Quran, their holy book, is only truly the Quran when it's still in the original Arabic. As soon as you translate it, it's not really the Quran anymore, it's merely an interpretation. But he noticed that Christians had this impulse to continue translating the message, to continue to find new words, new languages, new symbols, new ways to communicate the ancient truth. And there is this tension between our ancient roots and our always new expression. And when we think like missionaries, we're always looking for new words, new language. In fact, Christians, I think, have believed over the centuries that in order to stay the same, that in order to continue to communicate the same message in a new culture, they must change the language. That to keep saying exactly the same thing over and over again while the people who are listening to you have changed is actually to be the one who has changed. It is to change the message. Sometimes we must retranslate in order to stay the same. This logic that Christians have owned, have believed, since the earliest days of sharing the message across cultures into new peoples, isn't just some strategy. It isn't just some technique. It comes from what Christians believe about the very nature of God, what we believe about the very identity and character of God. Christians, from the earliest days, have not believed in a God who stays far away, who is unchanged, who is unmoved, who is not a part of human culture, but rather we have have been confessing from the earliest days that we believe in a God who 
took on flesh and dwelt among us, who was present to us in the person of Jesus, who laughed and cried, who mourned and rejoiced, who laughed and risked, who prayed, who was betrayed and supported, who lived in and through and experienced humanity from the earliest days we believe in the God who became incarnate. But this was not something that anybody had ever believed before. It was not something that the Christians even knew how to explain at first once they had experienced it. And so they began to develop these formulations called the Apostles' Creed, and later I'll mention again the Nicene Creed, to explain what it was that they believed about the one they began to call God the Father, God the Son, and soon God the Holy Spirit to explain their belief in the Trinity, the triune God, the God who is three in one, they developed these articulations of their faith. And over the course of this series, we're gonna be exploring the earliest of these, the Apostles' Creed. And today what I wanna do is share with you about two topics, two related topics. One, this belief in the Trinity, this belief that God is somehow both three and one at the same time. And then to focus at the end of today's message, especially on how it is that we know God the Father in particular. This belief Christians have that God is triune, that God is three and one at the same time. You don't have to raise your hand or anything, but let me just ask you, have you ever found that confusing? If I were going to explain that to somebody, what exactly would I say? What does that mean? I've heard a number of illustrations over the years to try to make sense of this. Maybe you've, if you've been around churches before, have heard some of these. I've heard it said that God is sort of like water. I mean, depending on the time, he could be like ice or liquid water or steam. And that's three different things, and yet it's all the same. Maybe it's like that. Or I've heard people explain that it's sort of like an egg. Can you imagine how an egg is three things in one at the same time? It's a shell and an egg white and a yolk. And maybe you've heard these or in a children's message or a Sunday school lesson or something. And if those explanations have served you, then I'm glad for that. They honestly have not helped me all that much as I've wrestled with this. What has helped me the most is to try to rethink it experientially, to try to put myself back into the experience of those first followers of Jesus. These these first followers of Jesus, when they first met Jesus, they all already believed in God. They, They knew that there was a God. They believed in God, they knew God, they had met God in creation. They looked around at their world and had a faith claim about how it came to be, that there was a designer, there was a maker, there was a good and powerful God who called this into being, and they knew that there was God. And they believed, these early Jewish followers of Jesus, that God had in fact communicated to them through Moses and the prophets, had given them a a way of life, a law to obey, and, and a message of hope and a call through the words of the ancient prophets. They believed in and they knew God. And then they met Jesus, and Jesus came to them and said, you, come follow me, and I'll teach you, and I'll make you fishers of men, all the things that Jesus said at the very beginning. And that was not a problem for them at first. They thought, well, Jesus is a teacher, a rabbi. You might, in contemporary terms, you might say they thought of him originally as sort of a pastor or a prophet, a messenger from God of some kind, and they heard his words. But over time, and as they experienced more and more of Jesus, they began to reckon with the reality that perhaps in Jesus, they were dealing with more than a prophet. That this Jesus, who was clearly a human being, could he also perhaps be something other than that? And by his deeds of grace and power, and by the authority with which he taught, and by the things that he said, and the things that he said about himself, they began to reckon with the reality that somehow they were dealing not only with a messenger of God, 
But could it be that they were dealing with God himself in the person of Jesus? How could that be? And there are stories all throughout the Gospels, these biographies, these life stories of Jesus in the New Testament of the Bible, that give us glimpses of how they began to dare to believe this before they knew how to explain it. But I'll share just one with you that speaks to this reality. And it actually comes from shortly after the time of Jesus' resurrection, when he'd been crucified and raised again from the dead. He appeared to his disciples who, who couldn't believe it. But he appeared to them and showed them that he was alive and their hearts were lifted and their faith in him was strengthened. But one of those early central followers of Jesus was not there. His name was Thomas. And Thomas heard from the other disciples that Jesus had appeared to them. And they said, we've seen him, he's alive. And Thomas went, no way. That can't possibly be true. Dead people don't rise. Sometimes we moderns, we contemporary people, think we're so much more scientifically advanced. That's why Christians in the early days were naive enough to believe in things like the resurrection. Now we're more scientific, we know that doesn't happen. Who are we kidding? 2,000 years ago, dead people stayed dead just as often as they do now. They knew, and Thomas is evidence of that. No way, he can't be alive. He was dead, he was crucified. The Romans know how to kill people. And then Thomas was gathered together with the disciples. A second time, Jesus came to visit them and Thomas was there. And Jesus said, I, I heard you didn't believe in me. He said, here, take a look at this. And he showed him the marks in his hands where he had been executed. And the marks in his feet. And a deep wound in his side that the Roman soldiers used to verify that he was truly dead on the cross. And he said, look, see? And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. That's not something a Jewish person should say unless something truly dramatic has happened unless he realizes that he is meeting the actual presence of God in Jesus at that moment. And then about a month to a month and a half later, after Jesus has ascended from them, has been taken up into heaven to reign as the world's true Lord, they were gathered together again and God poured out his very presence on these early Christians, the Holy Spirit. We heard this remarkable event read today in that long reading from Acts chapter two. This was the creation of the church. It was the pouring out of the very spirit of God and these early Jewish believers in Jesus, they had this experience and they were in the presence of God. And they said, what is this? And they remembered, Peter remembered especially, that the ancient prophets had said this was gonna happen. God himself said, I will pour out my spirit on you. And so they realized that they were in the presence of, of God, which was the spirit of God. And it was not Jesus himself, nor was the presence of God exhausted on them as if God had had to leave somewhere else and come here. So they were with God and yet it was not all that there was of God. And the Christians began to experience and to believe in the God who was God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And as you read the letters of the New Testament and the Gospels of the New Testament, you can see that the Christians experienced and believed in the triune God God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before they had the language for it, before they developed the word Trinity, before they knew intellectually and philosophically how to explain the relationships among the identity within the identity of God. And as time went on, they began to develop that language, and that's what gives rise to the Apostles' Creed. And then a couple hundred years later, with even more precision, to another creed called the Nicene Creed that tried to explain intellectually and philosophically what exactly do we believe and how do we explain it and what are the words that we can use that will explain it faithfully and what are the words that we would use that would kind of confuse things ourselves and other people. And throughout this series, we're gonna be learning from this earliest formulation, the Apostles' Creed. 
But as we go each week throughout this series, it's going to be important for us not ever to let this, this intellectual or philosophical clarity about our faith ever get too far out in front of our actual experience of knowing God, of actually experiencing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so today, in the, in the brief time remaining, I'd like to just begin there, talking about what does it mean to know and experience, to receive the presence of God the Father Almighty. That's the first line of the Apostles' Creed. And in fact, let's, let's say that again together. Can we put that up on the screen? This is the very first line of the Apostles' Creed. Let's give our voices to this confession together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. What could that, what does that mean, that God is our heavenly Father? It might help if I begin by explaining something that it doesn't mean. When we say that God is our Father, that God is our heavenly Father, we're speaking in the language of an analogy or the language of a metaphor, which means that it describes God faithfully and accurately, but imperfectly. That there are things about the description of being our Father that fit, and there are also some things that don't fit. One of the most important to acknowledge is that God, unlike human fathers, is not male. God is not a man. He's not a guy. He's not gendered and male, even though sometimes our language of father would lead us to believe that. In fact, one of the important distinguishing characteristics of the God of the Bible in ancient times, as compared to other ancient gods that occupied temples in Greece or Rome or the ancient Near East, is that the God that we believe in is not gendered. Those gods were. They were male gods and they were female gods. They were sexual beings. And that colored their stories and it even influenced the worship rites in some of their temples. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was distinct from those things. They recognized that God was not male. In fact, in our creation story, it says that God created them male and female. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. He created them. And so men are not more in the image of God than women are. Women are not more or less in the image of God than men are. But together, we reflect the image of God in total. God is not male. He is not a gendered God. We continue often to use pronouns like he or him or his, as the Bible itself does, to help us relate to God in a personal way. But we know that God is not biologically male. If there are things about this description of God that don't fit, what are the things that do fit? What was Jesus communicating to us when he taught us to pray to our Father who art in heaven? Well, th there are many, and I'll give you just a few this morning. The first one is he encouraged us to believe that God is trustworthy, that like a good human father, that we can trust God. Now, not everybody had this experience, but I was blessed to grow up with a father who I could know and trust. And when he told me something, I knew that I could believe that. As a middle school student, as a high school student, I played a lot of sports. I played a little bit of football and then eventually ran cross country and played basketball and ran track. And my dad came to a lot of my sporting events, both my parents did. My dad had a little bit more flexibility in his schedule, so he was there even a little bit more often. But when he would tell me, hey, I'll see you after school at your game, I'll see you this evening at your meet, I knew that he would be there. I knew that it wouldn't happen, that he would find something more important to do, that he would forget, that he would go to the bar and hang out with his buddies, that something would come on TV that he'd rather see. But if, if my father told me that he would be there, then I knew that I could take him at his word, that I could trust him. And trustworthiness is a part of the character of God that Jesus meant to communicate to us. Let me give you one example of how Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 7. This is, this is Matthew 7, 
verses 9 through 11, speaking to a gathering of human beings, many of whom probably were male. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? (laughs) Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, maybe not entirely evil, but in comparison to God, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, I know that many of us have grown up over the years or have had experiences in life that have persuaded us that we cannot trust God. But one of the things that Jesus intends for us to receive and experience in this teaching is that God, our Heavenly Father, is trustworthy, that he's good in his word, he's not using us for his own ends, but rather he's interested in our good, that he loves us and cares for us and can be trusted. Perhaps another characteristic that Jesus meant to communicate to us by calling God our Father is to communicate that God will provide for our needs. You might even say that we could trust that, that God will provide for our needs. Now, this is a way that culture has shifted in the last 2,000 years. In the first century, men were pretty much always the breadwinners for their family. Now, in the 21st century, both men and women have much more equal access to gainful employment. And it doesn't make you any more or less of a man or a woman or a mother or a father if you happen to have the larger income in your family. But in Jesus' day, that was different, and it was the fathers who were the providers. And Jesus used this image to encourage us to trust that God will take care of us as we trust in him. And this is one of the ways that Jesus said that. Just one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus told his followers, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And he teaches us to trust in God's provision. And in the context here, he teaches us to be open-handed with God's provision. If we believe that God meets the needs of us and of our world, well, then one of the things that we'll see as a problem is when we greedily hoard up all the stuff for ourselves, when the provision that God intends for his world meets a, a roadblock in us. And we'll want to see that God's provision is shared with those who are in need. When we come to know and reflect the heart of our Heavenly Father to the world, we'll also want to see that other people's basic daily needs are met. Jesus teaches us to to know God, our Heavenly Father, who cares for us, who can be trusted and provides for us. Now, there are other characteristics of God, the Father, that we could discuss, but I want to acknowledge here at this point that thinking of God as Father is easier for some people than for others. For some of us who are gathered here right now, or perhaps you're joining us online, you've had an experience of human fathering that actually makes it difficult to relate to God like this and maybe introduces some pain into your experience. And there are a few different ways to proceed with this. Now, the first thing that you might want to recognize is that the people that Jesus was speaking to in the first century may very often have had the same experience. Not everybody that Jesus was speaking to had great dads. And I've known plenty of people in our own age who have found in coming to know God, their Heavenly Father, a sort of second chance at this, who have come to receive an experience from their Heavenly Father of trustworthiness and love and care and provision that they didn't really experience growing up as a child. And that's been healing and and redemptive for them. And perhaps if you find yourself in that experience, that might be a path forward for you also. But I also have known people for whom this has just been too difficult. There's just so much pain in their experience that trying to relate to God as Father really has the effect of making them not want to draw close to God at all. And perhaps that's where you are. And if that's where you are, I just want to be very practical and, and merciful with you and maybe suggest that the identity of God as Father is not something that we should ever deny, but maybe you just want to set that on the shelf for a little while. 
maybe just kind of table that one for the present time, and learn to approach God first through other means that the Scriptures provide for us, that Jesus himself provides. And it may be that you first want to come to know the character of God in the stories of Jesus' life, and the person of Jesus, and in the presence of the Spirit of Jesus in us, and come to know the caring and trustworthy and merciful presence of God in Jesus himself. And you can also find in the Scriptures other images, metaphors, and analogies for coming to know the character of God and the heart of God for you, including even those passages in the Scriptures that describe God in motherly terms. And if you'd like to find those, I've put some of those passages in our growth group study guide that's in your worship bulletin this morning, and you can read those. And if you're in a growth group, you'll be able to discuss those with your group this week. Coming to know the identity of God and the person of Jesus is healing for all of us. Now, I, I want to finish today by sharing with you a question that came to me, that hit me in a, in a pretty powerful way just in the last couple weeks. I've been reading a book these last few weeks, and it's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Some of you may have read it. It was on the New York Times bestseller list and maybe still is. It's by a guy whose name is Nabil Qureshi. And Nabil Qureshi is now an adult convert to the Christian faith from Islam. He grew up in a devout Muslim family, and in the, in the book, he spends the first two large sections of the book describing his growing up years, and they were wonderful. He lived in a loving, kind, peaceful family that sought God and sought good, but he came to meet Jesus. He met Jesus in Christian people, and he met Jesus in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, and he met Jesus in some remarkable spiritual experiences. And over the course of coming to know God in a different way, he recorded this question in his book. It's kind of the, 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 the inscription over one of the major parts later in the book. And, and this is it. In fact, I'm going to put it up on the screen right now. This is what he wrote. What if God's majesty is not as important to him as his children are? What a way to think about God as Father. What if God's majesty is not as important to him as his children are? If you're, if you're a note taker, I'd like to encourage you to write that down because one of the action steps I'm going to ask you to take this week is to reflect on that question. And that was a breakthrough for him to begin to think of the identity of God as a heavenly father whose children mattered to him. Uh, listen, you could, you could write an entire book with all my imperfections as a father, and as soon as you finished it, you'd have to start the second volume. And yet my kids are probably the most important thing in the world to me. I, I delight in them. When they hurt, my heart hurts. I delight in loving them. I delight in being loved by them. I delight in being in their company. Now, let me go way out on the limb here and just imagine for a second that God might be a better father than I am, right? And if that's how I relate to my kids, can you imagine the love of our Heavenly Father for his children? What if God's majesty is not as important as his children are? What, what if nothing is as important to God as his children are? Could you begin to imagine that truth for you? Could you begin to imagine that the heart of God is set on you? And maybe that's different than your experience of what human fathering was like for you as a child. That, that when you hurt, that when you grieve, that God's heart is grieved, that he cares about you, that God delights in you, that he delights in loving you and he delights in being loved by you, that when our heavenly father looks at you, that he says what he said to Jesus, and Christians believe that Jesus gives us what's his, that he would say, you are my child whom I love, and in you I am well pleased. What if nothing is as important to God as his children are, and you're one of them? Over the course of human history, people have imagined God to be very many different things. Many people have imagined that God is some sort of deity 
in a temple, a sculpture of wood or stone, perhaps. Many people have imagined that God is some sort of faceless force out there in the universe. But what if instead of a deity in a temple or a faceless force, what if instead God is actually a father at a table? You see, in just a few moments, we're going to share in a meal together. And over the course of Christian history from ancient times, it's been called communion or the Lord's Supper, or sometimes been called the Eucharist. And we gather here together, it's going to be our Heavenly Father welcoming us at the table to which Jesus gave us invitation and called us the children of God. And you'll be welcomed here, invited by Jesus himself to gather with the family at the family table of God. Not, not at the kids' table somewhere far away, but here at the family table of God. And as you go forth from this place this week, beginning here in this worship service, perhaps being strengthened in your growth group conversations if you're in a growth group, individually for all of us also, I'd like you to take this question that I, I hope you've put in your mind or perhaps written down. What if God's majesty is not as important to him as his children are? And maybe you want to reflect on that individually. Perhaps you'll stick it up on your refrigerator and be reminded of God's love for you this week. Maybe you put it on the background of your smartphone or your laptop. It goes away so fast, but it'll come up again next time. Maybe clip it on the visor of your car and don't look at it while you're driving, but you know, when you start up or at a red light and be reminded this week of how much you matter to God. And as that thought seeps in to our hearts and souls and into the heart and soul of this community, can you imagine how we then begin to see everybody else? What if we begin to see everybody else as, as beloved children of God? What if, what if we began to believe about everybody else, no matter what gender they are, no matter what color they are, no matter what background they are, no matter what socioeconomic class they are, no matter what, behind what border they were born, that nothing is as important to God as they are. And if we knew that heart for ourselves and we began to reflect that heart to others, and if that happened in the heart and soul of this community gathered here this morning and all the others that are gathered not very far away, I don't believe that this corner of our world would ever be the same. And I could hope and pray that it would spread across God's world to reach all his beloved children. I want to join together and pray that God would make that so. Good and gracious God, we, we dare to call you Father, who loves us, who cares for us, who can be trusted, who provides for us, who welcomes us to our family and to your family and makes us one. God, I pray by the presence of your own Holy Spirit that you would soften our hearts and that you would root the truth of your love for us deep inside that you would reassure us of who you are and who we are in your eyes, that you would make us a people. And God, I pray for myself and for all of us that you would convert our vision, that you would convert our imagination, that you would convert our loves and our dreams and our hopes and our pursuits to receive your heart for us and to share it and to share it for your world. And that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.